Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we remember the life and unbelievable legacy that Boris Brat left behind after his tragic death yesterday at age 78. Dr. Carmela Tartaglia, a Marion and Gerald Soloway Chair in Brain Injury and Concussion Research, will join us to discuss the relationship between concussions and a number of other brain-related issues. And according to a new study, Ontario's move in 2018 to raise the minimum wage not only boosted incomes, it reduced the racialized wage gap and employment actually increased. The Ontario government says they plan to raise the minimum wage again sometime this fall. We're going to get into that for you, too. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Tributes continue to pour in uh, from so many people, not just here in Hamilton, but right across the country, right around the world. After the news yesterday, of course, of the sudden and tragic death of Boris brought. So many Hamiltonians knew Boris in so many different ways. One who, in a way, kind of got his career start from Boris at the age of 13. We're talking about Steve Pakin, of course, the host of The Agenda with Steve Pakin on TVO. He says the conductor had to divide his time between what he loved and making sure he could do what he loved. I remember him saying, 20% of my job is to conduct the orchestra, pick the music, practice and rehearse with the, with the orchestra members, and 80% of my job was to keep the orchestra afloat. And that meant the administration and trying to line up sponsors and dealing with the board and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, his legacy, which is enormous. And uh, to start it off, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Lou Molinaro. Lou, of course, is an instructor at the Harris Institute for Music, a longtime Hamilton music promoter and a friend of Boris Brat. Uh, Lou, uh, thank you on a very difficult day. I'm glad you could join us for a few minutes. Thank you for inviting me this morning, Bill. What, what was it about Boris that made him such a, a, an icon? I mean, aside from the talent, which was immense, uh, the personality of the man is something that most people have I've talked about in the last 24 hours or so. His energy uh, was like no other. The very first time I met him, I looked into his eyes and I noticed this, this vivacious, really youthful energy. And I think that really inspired his whole drive and desire. But he, he was methodical, but he also had this ability of thinking outside the box and being very creative and original in his pursuits. And I think that's what really made him an iconic figure. We all know him as being a, a really strong musical mind, but his ability of just being genuine and unique in what he did in, in supporting his love for classical music was just astounding. The other element to this, too, is uh, his, his ability to, to reach people with that music, too. Don't you think, Lou? I mean, the, there was a time probably generations ago where, well, you either did or didn't like classical music. Uh, and if you didn't, well, you didn't pay much attention to it. But Boris took the music to the people, didn't he? I mean, with the Brat Festival for so many years, he, he went out to the community centers and the church halls and, and, and the parks and, and, and played the music and said, come, listen, uh, and, and develop an appreciation for it. He went as far as taking it to DeFasco in the middle of a steel mill yeah. next to the Blast Furnace uh, just to promote it. Um, we had an iconic poster that we proudly hung at the St. Hollywood that I got from Steve Mann from Teenage Head years ago. And um, it was a photo taken by Herman Turkstra, Hamilton lawyer. And if there's a trifecta right there, a lawyer, a teenage head member, and Boris Broad all connected. It can only ha happen in Hamilton. But yeah. the, photo, the, the photo was incredible because it was taken in the middle of a quarry in front of a dump truck with Boris, his uh, later-to-be wife, Ardeth, and a bunch of their friends um, just promoting classical music in a very cool sort of very fashionable way and that's one thing that i really loved about boris was uh because he was just such a a, a creative individual 
with the infrastructure of music. Explain that. Well, you know, not often do you see people that will go as far as, uh, you know, just, I think it's safe to say that a lot of us always had this sort of a vision of classical music for older folks. And Boris never believed that. Like Boris always tried to keep it rejuvenated and young and fresh. And even when you look at the participants of his orchestra, uh, it was always a demographical mix, a cultural mix. And, you know, he, he, he really sort of uh, drove people to, 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 to reach this high. And, and the other thing about him was his connection with uh, doing these really great one-offs, um, connecting rock and roll and uh, classical music. One that stands out for me was uh, a few years ago, I think in 2016, when the Broad, um, the, the Broad Orchestra worked in connection with Jeans and Classic for a whole evening of Led Zeppelin music. And it was just really well done. And I think that's the thing that really differentiates Boris from a lot of other conductors or participants in classical music. Yeah, he made he made the concerts fun, didn't he? Uh, you know, he a sure bit, did. different twists, the stuff that you said. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, you know, and and I think that was part of the attraction. But you touched on something else, and I wanted to get into that. And that's of course the National Academy Orchestra, which is another uh, brainchild of Boris Bratz. Uh, talk to me about Boris as a teacher. Well, you know, I I was very fortunate just to kind of get glimpse uh, a few glimpses of uh, Boris as a teacher. I, I knew his personal assistant Heather Mueller. Uh, and he was, and she was the one who was very instrumental for me to being able to kind of live some of my fantasies out of just hanging out and seeing Boris in action. But he just understood people. And I think the thing about him was, is that as much as he really tried to teach music, I think he taught students to be the best just with their ability, just to go over and beyond. And you need a real confident soul to be able to uh, bring that out of a person. And Boris just had that natural ability. And he brought that, you know, we were just talking about him taking the show on the road, so to speak, uh, with the concerts. But, you know, even when he played high schools, and he did that often, too, in auditoriums and concert halls, he took the time to talk to the crowd. You know, there's an explanation for everything. You may or may not know about this, but, uh, you know, this is Beethoven when he did this. And then this, I mean, the anecdotal stuff that he had just off the top of his head was just phenomenal and, and really was captivating. It was really captivating uh, and, and and the thing that I always loved the most about Boris anytime he took the microphone was he always was so thankful for Ardeth's uh, involvement his wife his wife's involvement in the uh, National Academy Orchestra and everything like he was always praised her and you know gave her major props and that was something that was really beautiful about Boris as a person you know he, he loved his wife he loved his family and he always uh, gave him the true respect that they they definitely deserved. I'm going to ask you a question that I think you and I have talked about a number of times before, but I think it's very uh, apropos when it comes to Boris, uh, because we've noticed this phenomenon, really, where some of the biggest boosters of our city, of Hamilton, are people that weren't born here. Uh, they chose to be here. Uh, and Boris was of that ilk. Of course, he was born in Montreal and came to Hamilton and made Hamilton his home and became one of the biggest boosters of Hamilton. It starts with like, so before I moved to Hamilton, I knew of Boris Broad and I mean, my, my background was primarily rock and roll, but there was sure. something about classical music that I wanted to learn more about. And the more that I was learning about it, Boris Broad's name came up quite a bit. And the more I was learning about Boris, the more I looked at him as a rock star. So when I moved to Hamilton in 96, I was really looking forward to seeing the National Academy Orchestra in action and, and, and eventually meeting him. And you could certainly tell that he was just uh, an originator. He was an innovator. Um, you know, he, he was so instrumental in uh, 
the uh, Hamilton Place, which is now the the concert hall. You know, he he, he was behind all of that, and you know, the, the Hamilton is so lucky that you had someone like Boris Brat that really brought so many accolades and put Hamilton on the map musically um, and, and internationally as well. He, he, he kind of did that single-handedly on his own. And I really hope that maybe they will consider whoever it is that calls the shots to change the name of the Hamilton Place First Ontario's Concert Hall to the Boris Brat Concert Hall. I think it makes all kinds of sense to do that. I, I, and I go, I know, you know, the, the sponsorship stuff and the money, I, I get that. I, but, you know, this, there's got to be something in the way of a tribute for the, the contribution that he's made over the years. It's just a, an incredible individual and an incredible career uh, that we all saw. You know, he reminded me an awful lot as I watched him, especially interact with uh, with young people, and uh, not just in the orchestra, but even in the audience, of uh, a long, long time ago, uh, going to TV history. Uh, the great Leonard Bernstein used to do what they called young people's concerts at Carnegie Hall most of the time in New York. Uh, and he sat there, and he played the music, obviously, but he had a story to tell about each piece of music, why they wrote it, what the story is in the music, whether it was an opera piece or a classical piece. And, and, and Boris had that that incredible knowledge too to impart that so it wasn't just a piece of music there was a story to each and every piece of music which we know of course gives a greater appreciation for for the people that are listening to that music i had really great moments of talking about music with boris um there there, there was a time where i would send him songs via email and um he would kind of critique it and you know he would he would like a lot of them and some that he didn't like but then he would kind of give me comments like i can understand why you like this song and it had it not been for the strings the song wouldn't be as strong like anything that had like you know um, a, a, a classical music connection to it we spoke about uh Procol harem a lot the very early elo records um and then another thing was uh we spoke about frank zappa uh about you know his his, his Frank's ability to compose music and it was like kind of surreal for for me being a fan of music as well as uh, Boris brought the person to have these one-on-ones with him via email and just sharing music and I thought you know this is this is what life's about it's like these memories and it's just so sad that you know I won't have that chance again and there's a part of me that's very angry when someone leaves this planet to natural causes is one thing but the way Boris left was just so unfair it makes me just well. It, it, it oh, I can't. Yeah, I I know there's an ongoing investigation, and so we we I decided we're going to steer away from that today. Yeah, uh, but there's a lot more to come on that. I'm, the anger that I heard from so many people last night too uh, was palpable, but just because of what you just mentioned, uh, this is. A, a, a tragedy in itself, you know, to, and as we find out more details, I'm sure we'll become even more angry about this, about exactly what went on here. And, you know, we've, and we're finding out, you mentioned the top there, he's 78 years old. I, I used to see him go at the odd time to dinner, he, you know, after a show, he was at Shakespeare's with his, with Ardeth and, and other people. He didn't act 78. I mean, he was, he no. had this boyish enthusiasm. And, uh, and uh, even after a show like that, he wasn't coming, oh boy, that's over with. He's just full of life and energy. And he's talking about this and that. And, so animated he was just a, he loved what he was doing as a step friend steve pagan just said uh he loved doing it and he wanted to make sure we always had the time to do that as well as of course the administrative stuff and artif as you mentioned was such a, a key part there he had you when you looked at him he had the child in his eyes you know he just had that youthful 
vivacious spirit and he um always projected that he um he never acted his age and that's one thing that i really loved about him and and, and he was so engaging because of that you know he, he really enjoyed working like he, he had a couple of uh opportunities of doing things with the arkells tara lightfoot and a lot of other hamilton musicians and tying in you know i, I guess rock and roll or music in general, popular music with classical music. And that really inspired Boris a lot. And I think just the fact of always working with young people through the National Academy Orchestra um, really kept them happy and alert and, you know, giving them that, uh, that energy and that spirit. One of the things that uh, we've noticed, and certainly since you came here in 96, right into Hamilton, uh, is the rejuvenation of the arts in this community. And uh, and we've always talked about, you know, back to my city holidays, you know, that you've, you've got to have a, a vibrant arts community if you want to bring people in here and you want to bring talented people in here to make Hamilton home and, and lend their talents to every other aspect of this business or whatever it might be. And it wasn't always that way. Uh, and it, it, it was a struggle. Uh, people like Mike Romeo, who brought the opera here for a number of years, uh, and, and of course Boris, with the, his work with the symphony and with the 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 brought brought the brought music festival, etc. And and that's that's a big piece of that puzzle, isn't it? I mean, we're, we are Hamilton right now, where we are, enjoying the fruits of all of that work because of the people that have dedicated themselves. Uh, and Boris is right at the front of that pack. He's the one that almost uh, designed it. You know, when you really think about it, he he kind of put Hamilton on the map. He made Hamilton world famous in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, one time, one day he's playing for the Pope. Next time he's playing in the middle of DeFasco. He was just such a, a really great um, person to just inspire people to think outside the box and also to be confident in what you want to do. And you don't hear many people uh, like Boris Brat, and that's what makes him such an original where do we go from here? I mean, uh, from a cultural standpoint, I mean, it's it's time to mourn now, and we will do that, of course, in, in short, and, and, and talk about, as we are talking about today, about the incredible contributions he's made. Uh, but this leaves a huge, huge hole in, in that arts culture that we just talked about. I think the first thing is just to maintain and continue the legacy. We can't forget about Boris Brat. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the National Academy Orchestra are going to do. I, I hope... It, it, it still will continue in some way. I, I Definitely, there's got to be some sort of restructuring in order to keep the spirit of Boris alive. But I think it's very important for the city of Hamilton and the art scene, musicians, just to never forget Boris and uh, to continue with the legacy because he is an iconic figure and he did so much for Hamilton. We have to do the same for him in return. Well, I liked your idea, and I was thinking about that last night as well, about uh, renaming the uh, the first Ontario Concert Hall. Uh, I think it starts in, there. In some way, shape, or form. And, uh, you know, the Boris Bart Concert Hall or something of that nature. Uh, that's for others, I guess, to work out. But I, I'd like to see uh, somebody pick up the ball and, and do something about that. I think it would be a fitting tribute to a great man. I think it starts from there. Exactly. Lou, uh, thanks again for spending some time with us today and remembering a, a good friend of yours, uh, Boris Bart. Thanks. Take care. Thank you so much, Bill. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Lou Maldonado, of course, instructor at the Harris Institute for Music, longtime Hamilton music promoter, and of course, friend of Boris Brat. And again, as, as Lou said, his history was is basically rock and roll. Uh, but you know, Boris Brat, there were two kinds of music, good and bad. You know, he he loved rock. He loved all sports. He loved creativity, and uh, that is going to be his legacy for sure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. About five months ago this week. Our dear friend Angelo Mosca passed away. Football great, of course, member of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Uh, wrestler, world-renowned wrestler, of course. And one of the, again, another 
transplanted Hamiltonian who came here from someplace else and stayed here and, and lived a wonderful life here and was such a, a key part of the community, especially for charitable causes. Uh, when Ange was diagnosed with, uh, with uh, a number of different th things that were going on and CTE was being one of those, one of his last wishes was he wanted to donate his brain to science so that there would be some research and maybe to get some answers because it just seems with so many people that are, are developing brain injuries and the results of those and the recovery periods and a number of things, there are a lot more questions that seem to be answers for an awful lot of people. Well, uh, the research is continuing and with the help of Angela Waska, of course, and his generous donation to try to further that research. Uh, and joining us to talk about this right now is Dr. Carmela Tartaglia, uh, Marion and Gerald Soloway Chair in Brain Injury and Concussion Research and the co-director of the Memory Clinic with Toronto Western Hospital. Uh, Dr. Tartaglia, thank you so much for the time today. I'm glad you could join us. Thank you for inviting me. Let's talk a little bit about, about what you've been dealing with and, and the research that's going on right now. You know, we, we hear about CTE, we hear about uh, brain injuries. We, there's a huge debate raging, of course, about the impact that contact sports will have on this and uh, the impact that it can have on, on the long-term health of these individuals. There have been some terrible, tragic stories that we've heard from some of these athletes. Where are we now and what do we know about CTE? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, you said it correctly, is we have a lot more questions than answers. We're investigating that relationship between concussion and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. What we know right now is that the one and only cause we have for CTE right now are repeated concussions. You know, that doesn't mean we'll dis we won't discover something else, but we have to take the, the evidence, you know, right at this point in time. And so we are concerned with people getting repeated concussions uh, that they are at risk of a neurodegenerative disease and chronic traumatic encephalopathy is the one we're, we're most worried about. But you may know that concussion has actually been implicated in all types of dementias, as we know now uh, that it is a risk factor for developing a neurodegenerative disease later on. And at the Canadian Concussion Centre, we're really trying to understand what that relationship is. Because not everybody gets a degenerative disease after they've had concussion, but it is a risk factor. Uh, some of those, yeah, as you mentioned, related diseases, uh, Alzheimer's certainly, Parkinson's and, and things of this nature. Has there been yeah. a link established with, with that, doctor? Yeah, so I think, you know, right now when we think of these uh, risk factors for developing a degenerative process later on, so, you know, there's like high blood pressure and, you know, depression has been implicated. Well, concussion and obviously more severe brain injury also have been implicated as a risk factor for delayed neurodegeneration. So, you know, years later developing one of these diseases, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, um, but of course, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is the one that has been solely linked to concussion. Do you ever re actually recover from a concussion? I mean, it's, it's, you've damaged the brain. What, what, what exactly happens and, and is there a healing process? Yeah. And, and, you know, fortunately, I think most of us, you know, most of us have hit ourselves, you know, hit one part of our body or, you know, felt a little dazed after a fall. I mean, you know, most of us learned to walk and probably we all fell. Um, you know, we do recover and most of us recover very well. Uh, you know, there are over 150,000 concussions per year in Ontario alone. And the vast majority of people, and that's the people we know about, right? Like who have mm -hmm. interacted with the medical system. You know, many times when you hit your head, you don't even go see a doctor for that, right? And so luckily we do, 
we do recover. And most of us get back to our baseline. So what we're really trying to understand is why is it that some people seem quite vulnerable? You know, we all know of cases where, you know, a person has had one concussion and they just can't seem to get back to their baseline. And other people, you know, including some of the professional athletes who've had multiple concussions and they seem to be doing fine and they're, you know, relatively advanced ages. So there's obviously some vulnerability and some resiliency factors and really understanding that is is at the crux of most of you know our research so multiple concussions may lead to to some of these things that you talked about if you've had one is the second one worse yeah especially if you haven't healed from the first one so what we really think is you know that whole uh, that old um uh, you know, recommendation where people were told to rest after a concussion. We don't, we don't ask people to rest anymore. In fact, there's some evidence that doing some physical activity is good for you. But the reason that people were told to rest was because the worst possible thing was if you had a concussion during, let's say, a game, you were playing something, and then you continue to play and suffered a second concussion while you were trying to heal from the first, well, a, that could actually put you at risk of death, as in second impact syndrome. And, you know, you've probably heard of uh, Rowan uh, Stringer and how she died after a few concussions in, in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And so we have Rowan's Law in Ontario because of that. So the most important thing was to recover from your first concussion before you got your second concussion. And so people were told to rest. It went a little bit too far. And so now we do encourage people to do physical activity after concussion, maybe rest for the first 24, 48 hours, and then, you know, do something, but do not put yourself in harm's way to suffer a second concussion. Let's talk a little bit about Ange Mosca's case. And, and I, I understand that, the, you know, there's a, a big difference between when Ange was playing professional sports and, and now there are concussion protocols, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We can talk about how effective those are. But uh, as Ange told me many, many times, I mean, in his day, uh, first of all, he's a defensive lineman. I mean, the, the, the biggest weapon that they had was what they called a head slap. As soon as the mm-hmm. ball was snapped, you'd pound the other guy in the head. And, and reminding us, of course, that the brain is just on a stem and, you, you know, it goes and bounce, 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 bounce against the side of your skull. Uh, yeah. But in those days, as, as I'm sure Ange told you, and from your research, doctor, uh, yeah. you know, you came off with a headache and, the, you know, the, the trainer would simply say, how many fingers are you holding up? If you got close to it, you went back in the game. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the, the healing process was almost non-existent, I would think, in those days. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I think I, you know, I, I, there have been some, some dramatic changes in the sport. And so we do see that more and more uh, players are given the opportunity to heal. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, in a, in the career of some of these players, there have been multiple concussions. And, you know, it's not that infrequent for me to see somebody in my clinic who's, you know, taken over a year or two to heal and to me, that's a sign. The brain is really struggling, right? And if it's taking you months and months to heal from a concussion, then you really need to consider, you know, you need to consider your future. You have only one brain, right? And uh, although we want to uh, romanticize a lot of aspects of our, uh, ourselves, but, you know, really, we are a reflection of our brain. And if our brain changes, we will change, So, you know, what you do today uh, in your teens, in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s will impact 
your 70s, 80s, and onwards. And our lifespan now is, you know, well into the mid-80s. So I think, you know, we have to think of the fact that we have one brain, one body, and really throughout our lives be doing things that promote brain health and staying away from things that are bad for the brain. And so if, you know, you're having a number of concussions and it's taking you longer and longer and longer to heal from each of them, I think somebody should be talking to you about what uh, you would like to do for the rest of your life. Is there a correlation, doctor, between multiple concussions and, and memory loss? Yeah, so multiple concussions is a risk factor for not just memory loss, right? Memory loss is just one aspect of cognition, but, you know, people will complain about changes in their language function, ability mm-hmm. to concentrate, ability to navigate, uh, ability to multitask, also a change in their personality, People, you know, a lot of the cases of CTE that you hear about in the news, I mean, those are, you know, they're very few, but you hear about these dramatic changes in personality and violence. But a lot of CTE is not like that, right? We're, we're trying to better understand that clinical pathological correlate, but a lot of times the picture looks a lot like a patient suffering from another type of dementia. Right. It's not like people come in with a, you know, a, a placard on their forehead that says, oh, this is what I have in my brain. They come in with symptoms and those symptoms are just a reflection of the networks of the brain that don't work. And depending on what affects them, you don't necessarily get different signs and symptoms. Right. So the the signs of somebody who has CT in the brain could be exactly very similar to what you see in Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, they'll, they'll complain about memory, but they will also complain about other things too, just like in Alzheimer's. They don't only complain about memory. There's other things that change also. And, and obviously sensitivity to light. I mean, there are so many different things. Are there, are there yeah. hallmark, hallmark uh, conditions and, and, and symptoms that we should identify and say, that, you know, check that box, check that box. Yeah, you probably have a concussion. Yeah, I mean, you're right. When people have a concussion, so in the acute stage, they just had some hit to the head or the body, you know, having post-traumatic headache is very, very, very common. And it's not infrequent for me to see people who are struggling with a new onset headache every day. And then, of course, their cognition is not very good because, you know, how can you remember things when you're struggling with headaches and light sensitivity and noise sensitivity and you feel nauseous? Uh, You, you know, and then after a while, when it doesn't go away, your mood gets bad, right? Because you're not sleeping well and, you know, you, you isolate yourself. So, of course, it becomes this vicious circle. So after a concussion, there actually are a lot of things we can do to try to help people. But all those changes that come about is because there was some injury in the brain. And a lot of times, you know, patients will tell us, even if we don't intervene, the symptoms do get better over time, but very slowly. And in some people, it's very, very slow. And then in a few people, it becomes kind of this chronic state uh, where they'll have like chronic headaches. Uh, You know, their mood is chronically bad. And so at that point, it really becomes important for us to intervene. And we're trying to develop protocols where we actually intervene early on. We don't let people languish in these, you know, chronic headache states for months on end before we actually do something or, you know, see them being coming depressed and anxious before we actually intervene. We're trying to intervene earlier on. How important is it for, well, ex-athletes, for instance, like Ange Mosca, and there have been others as well, uh, to make this, uh, this donation and, and, and to give you that, the opportunity to analyze uh, their particular circumstance? I think it's essential. I mean, 
you know, we would be nowhere and we would understand nothing, even the little that we do understand if people were not generous like that. Uh, you know, we have a lot of questions. We don't understand the, you know, that relationship between concussion and, and CTE or other neurodegenerative disease. We know there's one there, but, you know, just like not every smoker gets lung cancer, not every person who gets concussed gets a neurodegenerative disease. So how do I, we identify who is vulnerable to it? Who shouldn't be playing a contact sport, let's say? Who seems to have resiliency and why do they have that resiliency? Is it, and is it something that we could actually give to other people? So there's a lot of questions. And, you know, our research program is really dedicated to, you know, doing the research with the people while they're alive who've practiced a professional or high level sport and and suffered multiple concussions and then once they die that they donate their brains then we can really understand what is the pathological change so you know in in the players although some of them have cte they also have other things going on in the brain there's other pathologies there and we don't understand how they all work together to be able to give us the picture of the person who was, you know, sitting before us with their sign, their signs and symptoms? As I say, it's a lot of gray area here. Excuse the bad uh, pun there, but uh, mm-hmm. we're learning more uh, and a lot more than we knew even eight, eight or ten years ago, I suppose. And that's why I guess yeah. it's so important, I guess, to consider this research and uh, for people to be cognizant of the work that's going on. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing at uh, Toronto Western, and uh, thank you for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Carmela Tartaglia, uh, of course, uh, from uh, Toronto Western Hospital. Uh, and as I say, that Angelo Mosca donating his brain is a, a big step forward in trying to find out more about a number of different things, not just CTE, but as the doctor mentioned, uh, concussion syndromes, uh, Parkinson's, and so many other related issues. So we'll continue to follow that, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're heading into election season here in the province of Ontario. First week of June, of course, we're going to go to the polls. And uh, the Ford government is, uh, well, it's Christmas every day, I guess. They're coming up with new promises. Uh, another one uh, that uh, was just uh, unveiled this week that started talking about increasing the minimum wage, uh, which brought back an awful lot of memories uh, for those of us that remember the last time a provincial government did that back in 2018. The pushback about this was just incredible. Uh, you know, people are going to lose their jobs. Businesses are going to close down because they can't afford to pay that kind of money to people. Uh, and on and on it went. But uh, it was the wind government, of course, in 2018 at that time. But that's changed. It's changed in a big way now. And, uh, well, I want to talk about those numbers because I think it's very germane to the conversation about the, the impact that a, a, an increase in minimum wage actually has. And it's a very positive one, according to a number of different studies. I want to bring uh, Sheila Block into the conversation. Sheila is a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh, Sheila, welcome to the program. Glad you could jump on with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk a little bit about that. I I was just referencing 2018, the last time that this debate happened, and it was a a vigorous debate, of course. Uh, People saying that this is going to kill small business, they can't afford to do this, their overhead is going to increase, they're going to have to lay people off, etc., etc., etc. You heard all of those arguments. The reality, though, is the uh, the real story was quite different, wasn't it? Yes. So the real story was not only did the sun rise on January 1st, 2018, which seemed to be in doubt from some folks in the business lobby, But what we saw overall that year was an increase in employment, a decrease in unemployment, and an increase in wage rates, both across the economy, but also a bigger increase in wage rates 
um, for those industries that are normally associated with low wage work. So that included restaurants, hotels, cleaners, call center workers. Those folks saw an above average increase in, the, in wages. So you kind of think about this as a policy that was like a win-win-win policy. Uh, and, um, and of course, doesn't cost the taxpayers either. Why is the pushback every time we talk about this? And, you know, we can probably include the living wage uh, debate in, into this as well. That, that every time we give people that are, are you know, in, in dire circumstances a, a hand up, apparently it's never the right time. It's going to ruin the economy. Where, where does that mindset come from? I think there are a couple of places, one of which is, um, you know, I think you're right in the way you describe it is that these kinds of changes uh, tilt things a little bit in favor uh, of, of people who are working and a little bit against employers. So there's always a pushback against that. And there was also a, a, an economic orthodoxy that's really out of date now that said if you increase the minimum wage, what you're going to do is reduce the demand for labor and that a policy that you thought would be positive will actually wind up being negative. But um, a man who actually won the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, in 2021 did really groundbreaking research that showed that, that in fact, that was not the case. And he compared um, neighboring jurisdictions with uh, an, an increase in the minimum wage and minimum wage that stayed the same. And what it actually showed was that um, there wasn't those negative impacts that traditional economic theory would tell you uh, would have happened. Again, one of the arguments that we heard an awful lot of the time was, well, this is going to drive small businesses to actually lay people off because they can't afford to pay uh, person A, B, and C uh, this increase in the minimum wage. Uh, the anecdotal information I saw uh, as this rolled out over that particular year, and I'm sure that your evidence will back this up, Sheila, oftentimes they sometimes had to hire extra people because of the increase in business. So we didn't look as investigate that as clearly. So there are a couple of of issues around that. The first is that um, people who have low incomes or make minimum wage are more likely to spend that increase in earnings than somebody who ha who's making more money and who might, uh, you know, put that money in, in savings. And the second aspect of that is they are more likely to spend that money locally uh, then maybe, you know, you get a little bit of an increase in your income and you wind up uh, going somewhere warm for a vacation. So those factors come into play. But I think there's also a, a kind of broader thing that we have to think about here. And, and what we have to think about is, you know, in the 19th century, we decided that, you know, if the only way to, to make a profit in your business was to hire, hire children and have them work in your factories you weren't allowed to do that anymore. And if you couldn't make a go of it without uh, child workers, you know, you'd have to close down your business. And similarly, we collectively made a decision in 2018 that you would have to pay workers more if you wanted to stay in business. And of course, the vast, vast majority of businesses accommodated it. And you do that by increasing your prices a little bit, or you can do it by reducing your profitability a little bit. Or maybe some businesses closed down, but that's a decision that we made together and collectively. 
talk to us about the the money in the economy, though, because that's a key part of this. I mean, you know, we, we've talked for a long time now about shop local, and uh, and there's always a concern about how that's going to have an impact on small business. But you're right, as somebody who's making minimum wage and that increases, they're going to buy groceries. Uh, they're going to you know spend money. That, you know, the, this might be the same individual that couldn't you know decide. Okay, do I make the rent payment this year or pay the utility bill because I can't afford to do both? And what am I going to do for groceries? Uh, it gives them a, a a better standard of living. Uh, and uh, as you say, disposable income that, that before that they probably didn't even have, and th- that's got to be great for small business. That should be that should be good for small business, right? Because those are those are those local places, those places that that uh, people are more locally apt to use. But I mean, I think in these days with the Amazons and everything like that, I think we need more than than an increase in a minimum wage to try and get people to uh, shop locally. It's interesting to note too, by the way, because I, I mentioned I wanted to kind of loop in the uh, the, the the living wage program into this discussion, not just the uh, the uh, you know the, the minimum wage, program, but also the the living wage program. Uh, that both of these programs were actually developed to a certain extent by conservatives. Uh, Hugh Siegel, the senator for, for, of course, the conservative back in the Brian Mulroney days, uh, talked about a living wage and things of this nature. And it's, it's, it's. I know it sounds kind of trite to use this cliche, but I'm sure we've used it a thousand times now. It's it's not a handout, it's a hand up to get people back on their feet so they can be contributors to, to the economy. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that what people want to be able to work and to work with dignity and to live with dignity and ideas about uh, increasing minimum standards through legislation or the ideas behind a living wage or employers who want to sign up to a living wage pledge are absolutely those kinds of um, ideas that that really are important to to try and shape you know how the labor market works. There's also an element uh, that I can remember in some of the discussions I've had with small businesses that that might have had some skeptical approaches to this uh, when this program first started in 2018. Uh, and as you say, they've seen some of the benefits of this now. One of them, I, I'm told, is employee de- uh, retention. Uh, if you're not making enough money uh, and you're trying to make ends meet, sometimes you're working another job, maybe three jobs some, in some cases. If you're making a decent buck, uh, you're you're happier there. Uh, you know you can cover your your expenses and things of this nature, and you're more than likely going to stay with that employer for a certain period of time. And and that is an ongoing problem with people making minimum wages or paying minimum wage, obviously. Uh, and as you say, in restaurants, fast food places, and stuff like that, it's 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 staff turnover, and that's basically people looking for a better opportunity. That's for sure, and and especially in this labor market where low wage employers are are having trouble both finding and retaining workers. It's very important, but it's also a big cost to employers. Every time you have to advertise for a new position, every time you have to train somebody up, every time you have to add them onto your payroll, there are costs associated with that. And also, uh, if you have that retention and if you have um, workers who are uh, more engaged, then absolutely uh, you're going to have better service and you're going to have happier customers. I know that in the, in the research that you have done in the Sheila and, and of course the the Center for Policy Alternatives, uh, there's a gender aspect to this as well. We've we've talked about this in a broad sense about uh, raising the minimum wage and the advantages, uh, but as we found out with some of the other aspects of the economy, especially during the pandemic, uh, women seem to be more targeted by this and, and impacted a lot more, uh, and racialized uh, employees at the same time. Does this level that playing field? 
Absolutely, this works towards leveling the playing field. And what it really shows us is policies that raise the floor for everyone uh, really benefit those who are, who are closest to it. And so what we found was everybody's wages came up, but the largest growth in wages was for black women workers. Uh, and then came racialized women, then uh, non-racialized women, and so it really showed that for those who are concentrated in those low-wage jobs, jobs, this really was a boon um, to the, to those workers and a way to and a way to close the gap with everybody benefiting. Since we do have a, a an employee shortage right now, and you know we've all heard about uh, businesses that are having trouble finding people to work there, let alone retaining that person uh, in employment. How important is this particular piece? Of, uh, of legislation that the government promises that they're going to introduce, just addressing that problem and getting people back into the workforce vis-a-vis uh, -vis immigration or whatever the case might be, but making sure that there is enough money uh, from what they're making right now to be able to, to pay rent and, and to buy groceries and things of that nature. So you're talking about the announcement yesterday of moving to um, fifteen fifty an hour? Yeah. Yeah, so you want to put uh, that that announcement into context, right? So that's about a 3% increase um, from where um, minimum wage is now. And because it's a, we're getting very close to the election, this is a promise that the um, progressive conservative or the conservatives are making if they are reelected. Uh, and similarly, the NDP is offering an increase to $20 an hour in one year increment, $1 increments per year. And the Liberals are offering $16 an hour and kind of tied to what you were talking about earlier in terms of the living wage, um, they're talking about having regional differentiation uh, that would account for the different costs in different areas. Um, so all three parties are proposing this increase. And, you know, in terms of particularly the Ford government's 3% increase, that might just be catching up with inflation. Uh, you know, it was running at 6% in Ontario last month. And we know that um, there is starting to be some upward pressure on wages. But absolutely, you know, that policy can't hurt. It's going to help. Talk to us about that regionalization, because that's an important aspect of this. And I, I've always had a concern with the, this one-size-fits-all. You know, no matter where you work or live, you know, if you're in Owen Sound or in downtown Toronto, you get the same increase. Well, it, it's it's not as significant if you're living in Toronto as it would be in a smaller town that has a, a, a more amenable cost of living, I guess. Is there any talk at all from any government? I know, as you mentioned, the NDP and the Liberals uh, seem to be uh, acknowledging that as a problem right now. But it, it seems to me to be a logical extension of what they're trying to do here to you know, make it amenable so that, that you can live in Toronto or Hamilton or London or wherever it is that you're living uh, based on the cost of living in that particular community. So that is the proposal um, that the Liberals have put forward in terms of that kind of a regional rate. And I think in part they're looking at jurisdictions in the U.S. where there are, um, there are local minimum wages that are, that are municipally based. Um, and there are definite strengths to that, as you said. Uh, you know, I, I imagine the cost of a one-bedroom apartment well, these days it might not be that different between Toronto and Hamilton or not as different as it used to be. Definitely a difference between Toronto and Owen Sound. So yeah. taking account those differences, 
So on the one hand, that would absolutely be um, a positive. On the other hand, you know, that legislated minimum is something that if you get it across the province, individual labor markets could kind of adjust and move that up or, you know, move that up. Uh, but a guarantee that it doesn't go below that minimum is also important. Is there a concern if that were to be, uh, you know, put in place, uh, that it would cause a, a migration of people to the larger cities to the lure of making more money? Well, <laughs> I don't think that the minimum wage would ever be high enough uh, that yeah. it would allow, uh, you know, people to to have, you know, buy a house in Toronto. So I, I don't think that would be a concern in terms of that minimum standard, because I think that those wage rates would still um, be below that. But in terms of I mean, it's an interesting question you're raising. Like, what if there was a problem between two jurisdictions, right? So side by side, would people migrate, you know, to the next place over where they wouldn't have to move and pull their kids into a different school just to get that? But then I think what we would think about that is the market will take care of that. So if people are having a tough time finding workers, uh, you know, in one municipality because the wage rates are higher in the one next door, then that would bid uh, that would bid up wages in that one as well. All right, let's, uh, I got a couple of minutes left here. Let's throw one more on the table here that we've been talking about for some time now. And that's tying uh, these increases, which we hope are going to be on a regular basis to the minimum wage, to the cost of living. So we have legislation in Ontario that does that. Um, the Ford government for the first two years, I believe, uh, froze that. Um, uh, but the legislation does tie that each October to have that increase. And that was a really important victory that was made when Bill 148 was introduced, because that way, you know, legislatures don't have to come back and make that change. And we had had years in Ontario, I think maybe almost a decade, where there was no increase in the minimum wage. So that automatic escalation uh, is important on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. But going back to the conversation about the impact on businesses, if you don't have that long time lag, they can build that into their planning as opposed to having, you know, in one year, more than 20% increase in the minimum wage, which is what we saw in 2018. Yeah, and that was part of the debate, wasn't it? Well, this is way too much. You know, let's let's do this incrementally. And uh, the, if if you have a government that's going to act like that, of course, you're you're never going to get ahead. As a matter of fact, you're never going to catch up either. So there's, yeah. there's got to be some consistency, I would think, for that. It's a fascinating uh, discussion, and as you mentioned, this uh, promise by the the conservative, the progressive conservative government here in Ontario is is based on if you reelect us, uh, we'll consider something like this. And there are other platforms, uh, both, both the Liberals and the NDP, that our listeners uh, should check out so they get some sort of an idea where they stand on these issues. Sheila, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks. It was great to speak with you. Take care. Sheila Block, a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.